Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialist.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from the week of July 1st. U.S. politicians are guilty of murder. The U.S. is currently number one in all coronavirus statistics and far ahead of all the wealthiest countries in the world, first in the number of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. As of June 29th, the U.S. has more than 2.5 million confirmed cases and more than 126,000 deaths. This is the result of the total disregard for the health safety, and lives of ordinary Americans by those who are supposedly responsible for protecting us. The politicians of both parties on the local and state levels, and especially the Trump administration. Instead of caring about us, their main concern has been the reopening of the economy, to get production up and running, to guarantee the health and safety of their profits. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit the most vulnerable parts of the population. Elderly people trapped in nursing homes, prisoners locked in what have become death camps, immigrant families incarcerated in crowded immigration centers, Native Americans, African Americans, and Latinos have been hit the hardest because they make up a disproportionate part of the poorest and working class sections of the population. They often lack access to health care and live in crowded communities where it's hard to social distance. They are often the frontline workers in health care and public services and in meat packing plants. They often have no other choice but to risk their lives and health to go to work to pay their bills and support their families. For some of them, now this means a death sentence. The pandemic has been turned into a game of political football. The result is a public health crisis. Trump has made not wearing a mask a political statement and supposedly an issue of personal choice and not an issue of public safety. There has been very little effort by the various levels of government to carry out massive programs of public education to provide clear guidelines on how to protect ourselves in our communities. Some local health officials who have used science to set guidelines for reopening of businesses and services, have received death threats. More than 20 have resigned. In the midst of rising cases, Trump and Pence held indoor rallies in Indiana and Arizona, totally disregarding the guidelines of the federal CDC Centers for Disease Control. Almost no one at the rallies, including Trump and Pence, wore masks, and there was no social distancing. These rallies took place while the number of cases in those states was climbing. Republican governors in Florida, Arizona, and Texas opened up their states without following any guidelines and without any regard to health and safety issues. They even contradicted local authorities 
who tried to impose protections in their cities and counties. And now infection and hospitalization rates are skyrocketing. Their health systems are being overwhelmed and lack adequate medical facilities, personnel, and PPE. Planning for profits, but not for health and safety, is what drove these governors' agendas. Do we need any further proof about the priorities of this society, which is run in the interests of the 1%? How many more lives will be lost? How many more people will get seriously ill and be sick for months, if not years to come, because of the negligence committed in the name of greed? They are just as guilty of murder as the cops who killed George Floyd. We can't see what they did on video, but they have certainly been exposed. And just as the people across the country have demanded accountability for Floyd's murder, we also need to hold these politicians accountable for the mass murder they have committed and will continue to commit if they are not stopped. Second week of shipbuilder strike. On June 22nd, shipbuilders at Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine, went on strike due to a contract dispute over proposed takebacks by management involving subcontracting, work rules, and seniority. The strike began after 87% of workers voted in favor of the strike, with about 4,300 workers walking out. On Monday, June 29th, they entered their second week on the picket lines. While management moved to reopen negotiations last week, union officials say it was a bad-faith gesture since they refused to renegotiate some of the main concerns of the strikers. Shipbuilders at the Bath Ironworks were deemed essential workers and have been forced to work throughout the pandemic. The last time they went on strike was in 2000, and it lasted 55 days. Amid the coronavirus crisis, it is no surprise that these workers have to fight for job protections. Politicians and capitalists have made it very clear that they are willing to throw away human life to protect the bottom line. While no one can predict what will be the outcome of the strike, it's clear that if we want to protect ourselves from economic devastation or the coronavirus, we are all going to have to fight to do this. Defend Chicago Bus Driver who took a stand against police operations. Chicago Transit Authority CTA bus driver Eric Slater was suspended from his job in early June after attempting to hold discussions with his co-workers about the fact that they were being told to transport police to demonstrations demanding justice for George Floyd and to transport arrested protesters to jail. In addressing his co-workers, Slater also wanted to share a statement from the Bus Drivers International Union, the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU. This statement stressed union members' rights to refuse work they considered dangerous or unsafe due to COVID-19 or due to the protests. In response to this, the CTA took Slater off the job, accusing him of promoting a work stoppage which they claim gave them grounds to remove him from his job and level disciplinary proceedings against him. Slater has sued the CTA and is currently fighting to be reinstated to his job. Slater should be defended from this attempt by the bosses to intimidate him. He was right to stand up and to speak with his co-workers about his moral opposition 
to supporting police operations during this time. To build support for Slater, a petition can be found on our website. June 30th, 1918. Eugene V. Debs jailed for opposing imperialist violence. Quote, The master class has always declared the war. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain, nothing to lose, and the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose. Unquote. For speaking these words to a thunderous crowd of workers in Canton, Ohio, the great American socialist Eugene V. Debs was sent to prison on June 30, 1918. His crime? Opposing World War I. Up to then, the most brutal and lethal war the world had ever known, with millions of deaths and mass destruction. World War I was waged, as Debs said, by the ruling capitalist class of each country, all of them claiming to wage war for freedom and democracy. Sound familiar? What this meant in reality was the freedom to further exploit the working class and the colonial subjects of each country. It meant a democracy for the rich ruling class. But while the capitalist class was eager to wage war, it was not eager to fight it. Instead, tens of millions of people, workers, oppressed people from the capitalist colonies, the poor, were sent to fight to increase the profits of the capitalist class and expand the plunder from the colonies abroad. Because he bravely stated these truths, Debs was imprisoned until Christmas Day, 1921. He was not the only one imprisoned or harassed for opposing the war. Hundreds of socialists across the United States and the world were imprisoned for speaking out against the war. Despite all the claims by the capitalists to support the right to free speech and a free press, these rights were eliminated in all the major capitalist countries during the war, showing just how little our rights matter when they get in the way of capitalist profits and plunder. World War I ended on November 11, 1918, and was hailed afterwards as the war to end all wars. Millions of workers were sick and tired of these wars fought to enrich the capitalists. They wanted peace. Across Europe and the world, there were mass working class uprisings against the capitalist class and the war. Soldiers and sailors mutinied against their officers and joined these uprisings. But ultimately, despite the energy and hopes of millions of people, these revolutions were crushed underfoot by the capitalist class. The war to end all wars is a century in the past, but wars continue all around the world today. The United States has launched repeated invasions of the Middle East to protect U.S. hegemony and oil interests in the region, causing hundreds of thousands of deaths and massive destruction of infrastructure and livelihoods. Just at the beginning of this year, Trump assassinated a top Iranian general, threatening yet another war in the Middle East. But the militarism of the major capitalist countries extends beyond directly invading other countries. The U.S. and its allies sell billions of dollars worth of weapons abroad every year and provides military support, advice, and equipment to countries that serve U.S. interests, including repressive dictatorships such as Saudi Arabia. And equipment that doesn't go abroad can always be used at home by the police, 
as the recent protests against police brutality have shown. These wars and the misery, suffering, and death they cause all have their origins in the functioning of capitalism. As long as capitalism exists, war will exist to help capitalists control more markets and natural resources, get a greater share of the world profit, and even make a profit by selling weapons and equipment. We don't need any of this bloody insanity. We need a peaceful world of international cooperation and unity. We need a world with money for healthcare, housing, food, and education, not more weapons. We need a world where we control the wealth we create, the communities where we live, and the societies we are part of, not the capitalist class and their political cronies. But in order to get that world, we are going to have to organize ourselves and fight for it. We can't rely on voting for any politician to build a new society. The Democrats and Republicans both defend this bloody and destructive system of capitalism. We have to look to our own power. These protests against racism and police brutality have shown us our real power when we organize ourselves and struggle. We must continue this movement. The only way we can win a world free from war is if we organize ourselves against the capitalist class and take power into our own hands. Putting a Band-Aid on the Cancer That is Capitalism Band-Aid recently released a new line of skin-colored bandages featuring shades of black and brown skin tones. The brand claims it listened to customers in the black community and wanted to be more inclusive to, quote, embrace the beauty of diverse skin, unquote. The parent company, Johnson & Johnson, has also announced it will be donating $10 million to Black Lives Matter. This all comes at a moment when mass consciousness is being raised about the systemic racism and violence of this society. Other corporations are showcasing displays of support for Black Lives too, with Walmart no longer locking up multicultural beauty products marked towards African Americans, Amazon displaying a prominent Black Lives Matter banner on its various platforms, and numerous others tweeting their support for Black Lives. But they can't just put up posters, unlock some cabinets, and put a band-aid on the problem of systemic racism and expect us to go home and declare victory. We are living with the legacy of centuries of institutionalized racism, with a vast history of division and inequality, with some granted table scraps from the rich while others get nothing. Today, many are waking up to the fact that the black population and other people of color have hardly ever had access to these scraps, are beaten down when they try, and are faced with brutal violence at the hands of those who protect property, the cops. While we are rightly taking our fury to the streets to denounce this injustice, we need to remember that there is still a feast going on, reserved only for those at the top. Capitalism uses racism for its own benefit, keeping us divided and isolated. Its desperate attempts to appease us during these moments of mass mobilization and consciousness must be exposed for what they are. Capitalism is trying to save itself, appealing to the activists of the day. It's doing what it does best, co-opting protests and social movements for the sake of profit. But only we, regular working people, in solidarity with one another, have the power to end inequality and heal the wound for good, rather than hiding it with a band-aid. 
nursing homes evict non-profitable patients. The epicenter for the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. has been nursing homes, where thanks to poor conditions and lack of regulation, 51,000 residents and workers have died from coronavirus infections, over 40% of the total number of deaths in the country. Now the horror story unfolding in these facilities has taken an even darker turn. In recent weeks, several nursing homes have chosen to evict patients who they deem not as profitable as others. It is more lucrative to house and treat patients with COVID-19 whose care tends to be paid for by private insurances instead of public insurances like Medicare. As a result, in order to make room for these COVID-19 patients, nursing homes are performing what they call involuntary discharges of less profitable residents and sending them to homeless shelters, motels, or other unsafe places where nobody is responsible for them. Many of them are ending up in the streets. A New York Times article details the horrifying story of an elderly man, 88 years of age, R.C. Kendrick, suffering from dementia and diabetes. The nursing home discharged him and transported him to an unregulated boarding house without even notifying his family. While there is no complete data on how many people have been evicted from nursing homes, the latest investigation found that more than 6,400 seniors have been discharged. In a country where the basic human rights to housing and health care are completely disregarded for the sake of profit, it shouldn't come as a surprise that we are facing the highest rates of death in the world. June 27, 1954 a bloody CIA-sponsored coup in Guatemala. On June 27, 1954, the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, was disposed in a CIA-sponsored coup to protect the profits of the United Fruit Company. The horrifying consequences of this action continue to weigh heavily today. The population of Guatemala, and most particularly, the Maya population, has suffered decades of brutal repression and war as a result of this coup. It stands as a lesson as to what the U.S. government really means by saying it defends liberty and democracy for all. In the early 1900s, Guatemala had never known a democratic election, and Guatemalan presidents could all be depended on to defend the interests of one giant U.S.-based landowner, the United Fruit Company. So widespread was the reach of this company that it was nicknamed the Octopus, El Pulpo, throughout the Caribbean and Central and South America. President Jorge Ubico, a dictator who ruled Guatemala from 1931 to 1944, was among the most devoted to United Fruit. By 1950, United Fruit was the largest landowner in Guatemala and had control over the main port of the Atlantic Ocean. Puerto Barrios. Ubico secured the company's interests and had nothing but contempt for the working population, which was overwhelmingly indigenous. He forced Guatemala's huge population of landless Maya people to work on government projects instead of paying taxes. He made all Indians carry passbooks and used vagrancy laws to compel them to work for the big landowners. Ubico also had a habit of jailing his opponents and stifling all opposition. 
the U.S. government never cared so long as U.S. investment in the country continued to be profitable. Eventually, the population rose against Ubico. In 1944, a coalition of middle-class professionals, teachers, and junior officers launched a pro-democracy movement. The movement won the backing of the country's growing trade unions, and the popular uprising that followed forced Ubico to resign. In 1945, Guatemala had its first democratic election. The winner was Juan José Arevalo, a university philosophy professor and author who had been living in exile for speaking out against repression. Arevalo was a captivating speaker, tall and handsome. He captured the hearts of Guatemalans who wished for a more just society. After six years in office, in 1951, Arevalo was succeeded by Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, a young military officer. Jacobo Arbenz promised to take social change one step further than Arevalo. Guatemala had tremendously fertile soil, but 2% of the landowners owned 72% of the arable land, and only a tiny part of these holdings was under cultivation. Arbenz proposed to carry out land reform and distribute lands that were not under cultivation to landless peasants, and further Guatemala's independence by creating a country with a literate middle class. Far from radical, Arbenz was outspokenly anti-communist. This land reform confiscated only property that was larger than 600 acres and not in cultivation. The confiscated lands were to be divided up among the landless. In addition, the owners were to receive compensation based on the land's assessed tax value, and they were to be paid with 25-year government bonds. The peasants were to receive low-interest loans from the government to buy their plot of land but the confiscated lands represented half the private land in the country, and more importantly, they included the vast unused holdings of the United Fruit Company, which owned some 600,000 acres, most of which lay fallow. Arbenz even offered $1.2 as compensation to United Fruit, a figure based on the tax value that the United Fruit's own accountants had declared before the land reform was passed. United Fruit and the U.S. State Department demanded $60 million. When Arbenz refused, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and the CIA Director Alan Dulles convinced President Eisenhower that Arbenz had to be removed from office. The Dulles brothers were far from neutral in this. They were both former partners of United Fruit's main law firm in Washington. On their advice, Eisenhower authorized the CIA to organize Operation Success, a plan for the armed overthrow of Arbenz. The agency selected Guatemalan Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas to lead the coup. It financed and trained Castillo's rebels in a nearby dictatorship, Somosas, Nicaragua, and it backed up the invasion with CIA-piloted planes. Castillo Armas' military arrested more than 9,000 Guatemalan supporters of Arbenz during and after the coup. Of course, Washington recognized the new government immediately and rewarded Armas with piles of foreign aid. That foreign aid to Guatemala continues to this day. Castillo outlawed more than 500 trade unions and returned more than 1.5 million acres to United Fruit 
and the country's other big landowners. For the next four decades, Guatemala's people suffered from government terror without equal in the modern history of Latin America. As the population fought to defend its land, the government engaged in mass killings, torture, and a reign of terror until the mid-1990s. Let this be a lesson to those of us who are confused by the U.S. government's insistence that it defends freedom and democracy, the only freedom the U.S. government has ever shown any interest in around the world is the freedom of U.S. corporations to extract profits from the world's peoples and lands and to use terror in the form of bombs and guns against those who have opposed them. Witness Iraq, the lie of weapons of mass destruction followed by regime change supposedly to bring freedom and democracy to the Iraqi people while in fact allowing for a feeding frenzy of profiteering in an oil-rich country. Police treat racist militia murderers with care. Last week, a member of the New Mexico Civil Guard, a right-wing armed militia group, shot a protester advocating for the removal of a statue commemorating a violent conquistador in Albuquerque. The monument at the center of the demonstration was of Juan de Oñate, who brutalized and murdered the area's indigenous population in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. The victim of the shooting was sent to the hospital in critical condition, while the shooter and other militia members were treated gently by the police. The respect with which the heavily armed white militia members were detained stands in stark contrast to the way black folks are routinely treated by the police. Unarmed black people have been seen on camera getting murdered by the police for small infractions or even no reason at all, while violent far-right extremists can be getting arrested carefully even though they carry and use lethal weapons. And this was not the first instance of violence from the shooter at this protest. Nor was this the first time armed militia members, many of whom are former military and or law enforcement, had shown up to silence peaceful protests around New Mexico, claiming they were there to protect property and deter violence. It could not be more clear what and who the police serve and protect. Their actions say it all. Phoenix Trump Rally. Spreading misinformation is state-sanctioned, but protesting lies is unlawful. On Tuesday, Trump held a rally in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Dream City Mega Church, his second appearance since taking a three-month hiatus due to the coronavirus pandemic. But instead of social distancing and masks, images from the event show a tightly packed crowd with almost no one wearing any protective facial coverings. Nor were there temperature checks of attendees, despite Tuesday being another record day for new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations in Arizona. Why was there so little effort made to prevent transmission and protect rally attendees? Possibly because on Sunday, the church had announced it had an advanced air purification system built into the building's ventilation that, quote, kills 99.9% of COVID within 10 minutes, unquote. They later backtracked on this wildly inaccurate claim, 
but attendees of the event were still required to sign a waiver that denied the church any liability for exposure to COVID-19. As if the story couldn't get any crazier, as Trump was repeating his mantras about how the virus is going away, the protest outside the event, which was considered an unlawful assembly by the Phoenix Police Department, was dispersed using flashbang grenades and tear gas. Life in America, where spreading deadly misinformation is state-sanctioned, but protesting this nonsense is unlawful. Speak Out Now is a revolutionary socialist organization. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. We want to thank Boots Riley and The Coup for letting us use their song Get Up featuring Dead Prez. Thanks for listening. <laughs>